Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased to have you with us. As we pass the mid-year point, healthcare boards and their finance committees are addressing a volatile economy. With financial conditions tightening, risk indicators remaining high, and key balance sheet functions, such as borrowing and investing, presenting unusual challenges. The unanticipated inflation charge and the continued low job participation levels are prompting characterization of a full employment recession. It's at such a time where the health system's credit rating becomes a particularly important factor and the role of the Finance Committee in supporting board oversight of the system's economic position becomes particularly important. And it's a time to remember that the governance characteristics of the health system plays a significant role in the corporate credit analysis. As we know, the leading credit rating agencies will perform a governance assessment of the health system in order to allow credit analysis and investors to evaluate governance issues on a consistent basis and to address governance risks from the perspective of its potential impact on creditors. In other words, there is increasingly a strong business case to be made for effective corporate governance. And we couldn't ask for a better person to talk to us today about the relationship between financial risk assessment and corporate governance than our longtime friend, Lisa Goldstein. Lisa's a nationally recognized analyst, speaker, writer, and expert on not-for-profit healthcare, and a senior vice president at Kauffman Hall, where she's a member of the Treasury and Capital Markets Practice and Thought Leadership Team. Prior to joining Kauffman Hall, Lisa spent more than 30 years at Moody's Investor Service, including 10 years serving as Associate Managing Director. She managed the rating agency's U.S. not-for-profit healthcare ratings team and oversaw credit rating and monitoring for 350 not-for-profit hospitals. Lisa's been quoted by the national media, including CNN, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. She's a regular speaker at regional and national healthcare conferences and serves as a guest lecturer at Harvard University, New York University, and Rutgers University. She's authored numerous industry reports and is an appointed faculty member for the Governance Institute. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. So Lisa, let's jump right into it. Why does governance matter regarding ratings? I thought it was all about financial metrics and debt repayment. Great question, Michael. It's great to be here. And that may be a very big misconception. Governance does matter. We can make a business case for great governance and what it enables a not-for-profit health system to do. So certainly credit and ratings, yes. It is, I don't know, 100 metrics measured over historical five years, plus a look forward, of course, because it's very much about the forward view. But there's no good margins or margins during difficult times without solid governance. Beneath it, around it, providing oversight, good governance, strong governance informs, you know, executive leaders of not-for-profit healthcare systems, you know, without micromanaging, and we can talk about that later but how to move the organization forward. So governance has always been a part of credit analysis, and it indeed underscores every strategy, every critical decision that a hospital makes. It has to. So it's been a longstanding factor by the rating agencies, and it's what enables an executive leadership team 
to move the ball down the field, right? We'll start early with sports analogies. But what it can't be, Michael, and you've seen this before, I know in your vast experience, it cannot be a rubber stamp for management. It's got to appropriately question leadership about strategy and decisions, but then trust management and enable them to make the best decisions they can for the organization. So you talked today about the feds are meeting. It's another big day. You know, we know rates are going to go up. They went up at the last meeting. There could be more. We're in a very difficult time for the industry. Financial viability, labor is just ubiquitous, coast to coast. And volumes, which, you know, you got to fill those beds. We're still largely, as you know, in a fee-for-service world, are very choppy. So this has been a time for hospitals, yet another crisis they've been through, and we can chronicle past crises. But as I've said before, and I'll say again to you and, and our listeners today, this is a time to think differently and lead differently. Because the challenges that I just outlined, they are not going to be solved in a month and a quarter. This is going to be, at least on the labor front, a couple of years till we address the pipeline and solve for X, if you will. And that's that's why I think great governance right now is needed, necessary, and must be bold. And those that assess credit um, evaluate that as best they can. And it is very much a part of driving those financial metrics or working through very difficult financial metrics right now. So I don't know if that helps illuminate why governance matters. A couple of follow-up questions in that regard, Lisa. What would you say to a, a new board member who asked the question, what does a creditor really care about governance All they care about, isn't it, about just getting paid back? And why does governance enter into the equation? We've got lots of other factors to consider, don't we, before we have to worry about board effectiveness as it relates to people we owe money to. Well, there's no debt repayment if there's no good governance underlying it. So their role is uber important. And for most not-for-profits, indeed, they are volunteers. So they're not compensated to do this, which makes it even more of a passionate, I think, passionate mission to ensure that the organization that they're governing over can, you got to do more than just repay your debt. I mean, we can dive into financials, but governance needs to understand that. Now, I have met with plenty of board members over the years. They may have no financial background whatsoever. Maybe they come from different industries. Maybe they're community representatives. working with other not-for-profits, but they need to show, they need to learn and be able to speak with some level of comfort about financial results. And yeah, you got to repay your debt. I mean, that's the whole essence of credit. Will you repay your debt? What is the likelihood of default? And there's got to be strong governance, good governance surrounding, if you will, the executive leaders all throughout the organization to ensure that you're not just squeaking by. So governance is is very much a part of that and why it is so integral to provide that leadership and guidance to the organizations. Well, two related questions. 
is this, in your experience, best affected by a strong finance committee, or is it ultimately the responsibility of the full board? Well, I think, you know, when you speak about debt repayment, you can zero in on the finance committee, which needs to work with management to ensure financial viability, sustainability. And that's those are the buzzwords we're hearing right now, viability and sustainability, given, given the challenges. So from a financial debt repayment, credit worthiness, yes, indeed, a lot falls on the finance committee. That is part of their charter. But it's got to bounce back to the entire board, which is, you know, this is why governance matters. Everyone has to be versed on the, maybe not the intricacies, Michael, but a basic understanding of why finance is important. Well, let's pick up on that last thought. The conference board had a recent report, which I found interesting, in which they, of course, stressed the importance of diversity in governance, but they also stress the need to have what I kind of call blue guys in there, people who have the business and strategic sense to to pull it all together and to use the sports analogy to uh, see the whole field. So there's a bit of a push from a lot of different committees' perspectives that I see about we need to add more subject matter experts. How critical from your perspective is it to add subject matter experts on finance and how hard is it to find those people? Yeah, I think it's very important now more than ever. And over the years when I have worked with high-performing hospitals of all sizes, could be national, could be regional, could be, say, single site, the common theme is having on the finance committee or on the board individuals with, say, investment expertise, real estate expertise, Maybe they come from, in their day jobs, a regulated industry, like, say, utilities, those that have, in their background, debt and capital structure expertise. I think they are very important because they've got to be able to speak the language, if you will, and and truly be able to understand a a deep dive regarding financial performance. Um, I would imagine right now, those individuals are in high demand. Yeah, I was say it's a seller's yeah. market for that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Corporate America, not-for-profit world. I mean, it, you know, governance is governance. So being on a board, it, it is very time-consuming. And people have their, their day lives, of course. But I think those are the skill set that are very much needed now at not-for-profit healthcare. Yes, clinicians are important. Let's not forget about physicians and, and other caregivers. But financial... We are just navigating through very rough waters now, and we think, you know, over the the next year or so. So very, very integral to have that skill set. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about how the credit rating agencies look at this. And maybe you can draw the distinction for us between evaluating governance from the perspective of established metrics or no metrics at all. Yeah, I mean, I think the industry is still seeking a metric, an index, something to measure what is effective governance. And I don't think we've landed on that yet. So there's a a charge if ever there was, but the rating agencies look at this. So how do they measure effective governance? Well, here's the first way. Does an organization meet its budgets or do they consistently miss their budgets? You know, miss the wrong way. The ability to set financial targets and develop a roadmap to meet those targets are an indication of this is a team and a board that has it going on. 
They understand their challenges. They're not wildly conservative with pie in the sky, what we used to call hockey stick numbers, right? Nor do they sandbag and the sky is falling. It's, it's a conservative but realistic approach to budgeting. So do you make budget or do you keep missing budget? That's an indication. What about their disclosure practices? Are they the bare basics of what's required? Is it somewhere in the middle or is it very extensive, say, quarterly disclosure? And that's time consuming, we know. But that's an indication, perhaps, of good to great governance. Not-for-profit healthcare is very complex, Michael, and that, you know, if, if our listeners today draw a Venn diagram, you would have one circle of, this is corporate. This is good old, for most, FASB accounting, gap accounting principles, and very competitive strategies. And the other circle of the Venn diagram would be the social mission, which we're going to talk about. And, you know, corporations don't have uncompensated care, right? They don't have charity care. So you have in the middle of this Venn diagram, you have not-for-profit health care. And good governance, you know, kind of maintains a healthy balance, if you can, between the two, between those two orbits, because there is there is huge overlap. So maybe just an image for, for all of our listeners today. It's very complex. And when I walked into meetings with organizations and they were coming you know, for a rating or a rating update evaluation, one indication was how they tell their story. You know, could they articulate the story or did they have a script? And it's that informal dialogue that can you know, address questions and speak effectively about recent history and that forward view that was a measure of good governance. Again, it's not a metric. It's, you know, having a dialogue in a meeting about the organization from that governance level. So there are so many things we saw during COVID, early days of COVID, that was another indication looking back when the stories are written one day, we hope soon about COVID. We saw a real kind of separating the wheat from the chaff, I think, Michael, and those organizations that moved quickly, you know, when the government said, you got to shut down, you know, what do you mean you shut down? So there were a lot of tough decisions that had to be made very fast. And the higher performing ones made tough decisions very quickly, you know, board involved with senior management. This is our world right now. And then, of course, you know, where my world intersected was on covenant management and getting ahead of that. And we can talk about that. Yeah, I want to get to that. Yeah. So long, long answer to a very important question. Lisa, as we discuss this whole perspective of how the rating agencies look at healthcare system governance, is there a model out there from your perspective in terms of a high performing healthcare system board that our listeners should look to as a gold standard? Yeah, great question, Michael. And I, I've had the honor of working with systems of all sizes across the country, of all credit ratings, and uh, very high-performing organizations. And I'll share with you a real-life example of one of the most effective governance meetings or indications that I had over the years was actually with some of the one of the riskiest types of hospitals out there, a 25-bed facility, right? Not a 1,000 beds, not multi-site. 25. All of 25. So we know the inherent vulnerabilities. Small, small medical staff, 
probably difficult to recruit because rural, you know, workforce and volumes, you know, 25 beds, maybe your census is 10. So very difficult. And we went into a meeting and I was like, oh, the risks here are just huge because they're all 25 beds. Well, that board member was very well versed in the credit market as a business professional. And he was well informed and well prepared. And he said, I, I know the risks here. We are 25 beds. We have 10 doctors. You know, we have a staff of 30. So I know we're walking in kind of with the deck stacked against us, but this is how we've performed financially. Went back in recent history. These were the targets that we set. We met them. Here's how. This is our go forward. And this is how we're going to do it. So all of a sudden, you know, we went from high risk to very fast credibility as he unfolded and unpacked the story as to how they've managed, done more than just managed, but done well financially, despite some very big just credit risks that we saw, size, positions, et cetera, everything I met I, I mentioned. So sometimes it doesn't matter if you're a big system or the smallest of the small, when there's effective governance that can help, again, not micromanage, but help lead an organization forward, hold them accountable, set realistic targets, that makes for a very effective governance example and story. And you know what? They got an investment grade rating despite these challenges, and they've done just fine because I think very effective governance. So there's a real life example for you. Perfect. And you're putting that, you're going to put the pressure on the governance and nominating committee to find those kinds of incisive directors. Well, let's talk about covenant management because that's something that resonates, an issue that resonates. And sometimes in my world, at least, is a source of controversy. I think there's a, a perspective out there that says covenant management is absolutely positively 100% the responsibility of the CFO. Or you can stay out of that. I think there's another perspective that says, no, that's exactly one of the things that, that a board through its finance committee should provide some oversight over and should have its finger on the pulse of. How do you see that? Does the board need to care about covenants? Hands down, yes, to the moon and back. Agree. You know, the covenant compliance attestation, if you will, whose name is on it? The chief financial officer, right? But the whole organization has to be accountable for making those covenants. So let's, if I may, let's take a step back. You know, what is a bond, right? A bond is a promise to pay, you know, your lender back for the money they they loan you. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise, if you will, to make sure financial performance, cash flow, liquidity is strong enough to ensure that there's debt repayment. So with every bond issue, the hospital covenants to meet certain financial levels, targets every year. It may be measured every year, every quarter, every six months, depends on who the lender is, depends on the organization. So the covenants to me provide those financial guardrails that say, yeah, we're going to pay our debt back and we're going to perform at this level to ensure to our lenders that we're going to have the financial strength to pay back that debt. So Covenants, you know, in its most biblical form, Michael, it's, it's a promise. It's a promise to pay back. So a borrower, it is so important to make those covenants, to be in compliance with the covenants that you agreed to when you borrowed the money. 
Some are P&L driven, some are balance sheet driven, some are debt level indicators. You have to make those covenants because that builds your credibility now and the next time you go to borrow. So let me give you an example. Many years ago, I won't name names. There was a hospital in a high growth market that had the money to pay their debt. So they had the ability, but for various reasons, according to bond war legacy, they chose not to make the payment. They willingly said, we are not paying our debt. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Well, they wanted to force all the bondholders together for a debt restructuring. This is very rare. The trustee had to make the call, pick up the reserve funds, and bondholders got paid, but it brought everybody to the table. Well, believe it or not, they came back to the debt market a year later. So the question of the meeting was, would you do that again? I mean, who doesn't pay their debt when they have the money to? And they said, no, we'd never do it again. Well, you know, their credibility had been shot. And the rating that was assigned was a very low rating because fool me once, fool me twice. That is extremely rare. It will ricochet, torpedo an organization's credibility. So the covenants, the annual covenants, help keep an organization completely focused on financials to say to your lenders, we told you we're going to repay our debt, we're repaying the debt, and we're going to maintain a certain level of performance to make sure that we have the funds to repay the debt. So it's a measure of credibility, and you just you need to make those covenants. And if you see that you're not going to, again, as I mentioned, Michael, one of the things we saw that was terrific during early days of COVID, if an organization saw it's going to be a little bit close, we may not make that covenant like we're supposed to, there was very proactive early engagement with the lenders to say, it's going to be close. Can we get an amendment? Can we negotiate a waiver? Can we get even forbearance? Because the world has shut down. Now, you're going to ask me, so let me address it. It doesn't matter what the reason is. You know, it could be COVID. It could be a bad strategy. It doesn't matter. You got to make those covenants. And if you see that you're not, for whatever reason, you need to get in front of it. And that's what we saw high-performing organizations, again, of all sizes, coast-to-coast do early days of the pandemic. Now we're facing that again with the labor challenge. And we would say, get in front of those covenants early. So great covenant management is another sign of great governance. I think that, but that's, as an old debt collector, I appreciate that very much. But let's kind of turn to one of my favorite topics, which is the kind of lessons learned scenario. What do you see are the biggest lessons that management teams have learned from managing through the pandemic that we can apply to the current crisis and to the next one? You've given us some teases on that. What's your perspective here? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, lesson learned is the need to move quickly, thoughtfully, but quickly. Who would have thought the world changed with a virus? But you and I know, your listeners know, we could substitute virus and slot in the 2008 credit crisis, right? That was, to me, the crisis before COVID that the industry went through. And you know what? We could take out credit crisis and we could slot in the Balanced Budget Act of 1998. To me, that was the crisis before the credit crisis. And one more, you know what? We could take out the BBA and we could slot in 1983, I think it was 83, when Medicare changed how it paid hospitals from cost to DRG and the industry did not know how to respond. So 
crisis of yesteryear. There'll be a crisis of some type. It is healthcare coming in some way. Number one lesson during all of those, besides moving quickly, is quite frankly, liquidity. The need and importance of cash or however an organization measures their liquidity. Dollars of cash, days of cash on hand. We saw with COVID that when the industry shut down, the importance of having reserves, unrestricted reserves, management controlled that they could get to when they needed or they could access liquidity, access capital through banking relationships, come to the market, issue debt, borrow on a line of credit, whatever their source was, cash, once again, buys you time. And certainly not-for-profits, you know, there's two ways to bring in liquidity, either cash flow, right? You earn it and you save a little bit and pay your debt and pay your capital, et cetera, or you borrow it. There's no, unlike their for-profit brethren, there's no equity, there's no IPO. It is you either earn it or you borrow it. And that's it. That's it. And once again, if I've seen it once, I've seen it many times. Cash buys you time. Cash provides that cushion and provides bulwark, if you will, toward you know rough days, rough times. So once again, I think the lesson learned is very, very finance-oriented. You need that rainy day fund. And we saw governance very effective in this. What did we see? You know, we saw trustees on behalf of their not-for-profit hospitals call up their commercial bank partnerships. You know, we're trying to get in front of you. My team's trying to get in front of you because you know, Michael, what happened in March of 2020, April of 2020, there was a run on the banks. Yeah, Everybody was calling the banks. So trustees stepped in, they had relationships, you know, let's get in line first. Trustees, I'm telling you, stepped in to get gloves and masks and ventilators, calling who they knew through their professional relationships. Trustees stepped in and helped make those quick decisions on staffing, furlough, don't furlough, you know, where are we going to get additional folks from? It was just terrific. And, And also, you know, helping the teams, the teams, everyone's accountable on the covenants. So. You know, I think liquidity remains a very important aspect and moving very quickly. Those those would be repeated lessons learned over and over again. And creditors, I take it, will look to the board if they don't see indications of those lessons learned. Yes. Right. Yes. Like, where where was the board? Yeah, where and, were you in this? Uh, yeah, yeah. Lisa, we, we've saved the most complex and confusing question for the last kind of purposely you and I have both been involved in advising clients on ESG issues. And it's kind of interesting as we talk today, we're starting to see the movement of ESG directly into healthcare with some of the initiatives of the Biden administration and uh, DHHS. What exactly from your perspective does ESG mean for not-for-profit healthcare? Yeah. Well, your first question today about why does governance matter, maybe it doesn't. And I said, if people think governance doesn't matter, that's a misconception. On ESG, there's a misconception, I think, Michael, that ESG is new to not-for-profit healthcare, and it is so not new. What's new is kind of a shiny rubric called ESG, because you and I know, your listeners know, that not-for-profit healthcare, by definition... They are the definition of social, which is environmental, social, and governance. They define social 
It is not new. They've been driving, you know, missions, values, strategy, all toward being responsibly, you know, from an environmental perspective, meeting their social mission, treating everyone, if you will, workforce engagement strategies, and of course, you know, our passion, governance, providing very strong governance. So it's it's not new. It's just perhaps now coming to the forefront now more than ever. So I had the CFO say to me recently, Lisa, you know, it's gone from the basement to the boardroom. It's gone from the basement to the lobby of the hospital. So it is very important. There's a host of strategies that's continually being developed on ESG. And now indeed the rating agencies are weighing in. Yeah. I was about to ask that question. Yeah. Yeah. That's getting some attention. So why are they weighing in on this? Because they've said ESG has always been incorporated in the bond rating. So why the call out? And I think you got to look to the buy side, the investors. Corporate taxable investors have been very focused on ESG by corporate America, global corporations. That is now segueing or or flowing in now to not-for-profit, to the municipal side of, of the debt market, the taxes and debt market. And investors are now saying, you know, to not-for-profit borrowers, city and state, local governments, et cetera, you know, where are you on ESG through this additional call out of ESG scores, if you will, they all call them different things, but we'll use the term scores. They're measuring the risk. So these aren't gold stars for having great ESG strategies. They are like a bond rating, calling out the risks of what E or S or G may mean for an organization. So it's it's very much an investor-driven strategy. But hospitals have been at this for years. This is not a, a new development or a new item, agenda item at a board meeting. They've been talking about this and it's been part of their lifeblood forever. But now the credit rating agencies are starting to pay attention to it. So one more prompt in the series of prompts this year of why the board should be concerned with ESG. Lisa, what a tremendous presentation. I think this is, we've just enjoyed it so much, and especially the clarity that you provided about the relationship between governance and ratings. We thank you so much. And and I have to say that if there was any question amongst our audience as to the business case for effective corporate governance, Kaufman Hall's Lisa Golson has taken that right off the table. Lisa's provided us with the terrific reminder of the vital link between financial risk management the credit rating analysis, and the role of effective governance. Lisa's made us much more aware of the aspects of governance that play a particular role in the credit rating process. And she's also prompted us to look at governance from the perspective of investors and creditors, especially with respect to ESG. The bottom line is that the Finance Committee and the Governance Committee should be integrating their activity much more closely. The stakes are too high not to. Lisa, thanks so very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Our pleasure to be here. Thank you, Michael. We appreciate all of you joining us for today's episode of Governance Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future episodes and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrin, saying thanks for listening.
This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.